Ooh, nice shot. Yeah, I'm feeling good today. I can tell. What's up? Oh, my back feels better than it has in a long time. New masseuse? Nope, it's Spine Doc. Oh, a chiropractor. No, it's this great product that relieves back pain and tension. How does it work? Oh, you just lay on it for about five to ten minutes a day, and it stretches and relaxes your entire back. Huh, does it hurt? No, it's very comfortable with good support, and the stretch... It's nice and easy. Even Nancy uses it. Oh, she likes it. It must be good. And when it's done for my neck and shoulders, pure magic. <laughs> yeah, I'll say. If long hours hunched over the computer, sports or life in general has left your back or neck in pain, order Spine Doc and get relief. Just call 800-788-2744. The first 100 orders will get a free upgrade to our deluxe system and free shipping. That's a savings of over 25%. Call 800-788-2744 now to learn more. That's 800-788-2744. 800-788-2744. Spine Doc, a better back for life. You're listening to House of Cards on the House of Cards Radio Network. Check us out at houseofcardsradio.com. You know what cheers me up? What? Rolled up aces over kings. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. The House of Cards. Today, the game is different. With author and professional poker player Ashley Adams. Okay, you have some skill. Hello, listeners. Welcome to House of Cards. I'm your host, Ashley Adams, and I am I'm just absolutely uh, flabbergasted at the quality of the guest that we are going to have for the basically the whole show, other than mailbag, of course, and the updates that my producer provides. We have a, a double segment guest today. His name is David Schwartz. And let me just tell you briefly about David. If you don't know his name by now, he is an author and an academic in the field of gaming and gaming history specifically. He's written this book, Roll the Bones. He actually wrote it in 2006, but he's updated it. It is the history of gambling. Our interview will cover stuff that at least I'm fascinated by. I hope you will be too. Roulette. How did it get started? How did it spread? Uh, What happened to gambling in Europe? Why did it become popular? When was it outlawed? Why was it outlawed? What about craps? What about all the other gambling games. What about what's going on in Asia? What about the future of gaming? Uh, fascinating guest. We cover a ton of topics. I'm certain you'll enjoy listening to him. It is a fascinating story that he tells. So stay tuned. We'll be back after a quick break. Fellas, are you looking to spice things up in the bedroom? Been fantasizing about surprising your lover with an adventurous new toy or adult movie? Well, here's an offer you won't be able to resist. Go to adamandeve.com, and for a limited time only, you'll get 50% off just about any item. But that's not all. Oh, no. When you select your one item at 50% off, you'll also receive three free adult DVDs for a little inspiration. Plus, a free extra gift so sensual, we can't mention it on the radio. And to top it all off, we'll even throw in free shipping on your entire order. And no, 
or not teasing. So check out adamandeve.com today for this special offer. Get 50% off one item when you type BABE16 for the offer code upon checkout. When you do, you'll get three free DVDs, a free extra gift, and free shipping. Just use offer code BABE16 at adamandeve.com. Heading out to Vegas for the World Series of Poker or just hitting the strip for a vacation? Check out playerrooms.com before you go. With playerrooms.com, you can book a room at the beautiful LVH, formerly the Las Vegas Hilton, between May 15th and July 30th for only $36 a night. Same rate every night, even Friday and Saturdays. That's $36 a night between May 15th and July 30th. Playerrooms.com. A great room at a great price. Book it today. You're listening to House of Cards on the House of Cards Radio Network. Check us out at HouseOfCardsRadio.com. to the House of Cards with Ashley Adams. It is with great honor that I present your host, the man who sold the dragon his fire, stole it back, and sold it again to the creeps. Welcome back, listeners. This is Ashley Adams. You're tuned in to House of Cards. Uh, if you're a regular listener on this show, you know that we like to have experts, people who know of what they speak. And uh, toward that end, we often have writers, and uh, today is no exception. You know, we had James McManus on talking about his book on the history and lore of the poker world. Well, we have a writer of similar ilk. This is David Schwartz the director of the Center for Gaming Research at the University of Nevada in Las Vegas, and he has just updated his book, his 2006 book called Roll the Bones. He has a new edition out that uh, picks up where the last one left off with the gaming in Asia and in the United States of casino gaming. And so let's bring him on. David, are you there? I am. Terrific. So give our viewers uh, a little more detailed understanding of what your book, Roll the Bones, is, and then we'll talk about some of the subject matter that you cover. 
Yes, the book is a history of gambling and particularly casinos going all the way back to the first casino in Venice, which was back in 1638, up until about December 2012 and what was going on then and all the exciting expansion of gambling everywhere it's expanded. So what was the first casino like in Venice? What kind of games did they have? What was its size? What kind of stakes did people play for and who patronized it? Well, it's really interesting. It was originally chartered as a way to let this clan of nobles who didn't work because they were noble but didn't have any money left to kind of get them off the public welfare rolls and let them do something productive. And it came to really be the crossroads of Europe. Everyone from Casanova to philosophers and and all sorts of other people went there to see the gambling and also to gamble. The big games were a game called Bassett that later evolved into a game called Faro, which some of your listeners may know was a big game in the United States, especially around the Civil War period. So not so much blackjack and stuff that we play now, but the game of Faro was very big. Faro was said to have built the West because Faro tables were so popular as our country expanded West that uh, the money earned really helped establish towns going all the way out to California, right? It did, yeah. And this is kind of shows the game's longevity. You know, it was big in Venice back in the 17th century, and then 200 years later, it, it's prominent in the United States. So who provided the capital for this casino or for these well, casinos? Well, the, most of the capital came from that clan of nobles and from the government who staked them. And, you know, it became so successful that the nobles who originally were the dealers ended up hiring other people to deal for them and sort of ran the thing as their own enterprise and did very well. Did they also have dice games like craps or did they not have those? They didn't. They they mostly just had the, the Pharaoh and, and that game. A little bit of roulette, too, but not very much. Was the Pharaoh uh, with a deck that we would recognize today, or was it a different kind of a deck? It looked somewhat similar. It didn't have all the hallmarks of the deck of today, so it didn't have the double index where it looks the same um, from the top and the bottom, but it looked pretty similar. It had court cards and aces and uh, numbered yes. pips. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, those go back to about 1,400 or so. I see. And uh, from Italy, how did, I, I know that in the 18th century, it was already well, gambling was very well established in France and England. How did it migrate? What was the route? Well, it really moved around everywhere. And it had been, you know, it, it was, the casino was big in Italy. Then in the 18th century, that casino closed. And a lot of casinos open up in spas, you know, little spa resorts throughout Europe. And for the next 100 years or so, that was really dominant. You also had a lot of gambling going on in England in gentlemen's clubs. And this was technically illegal, but because a lot of the members are very influential, members of parliament, it went on. I see. When, if ever, during these eras did gaming or gambling, as it really should be called, I think gaming is kind of a sanitized phrase, When did it open up to the masses, if it ever did? Well, it started to open up at Monte Carlo, which was the last gambling resort town in Europe. In the 19th century, France banned gambling, Germany banned gambling, Britain banned gambling. Most of the big countries started to ban it. So by around 1870 or so, the only place where you could legally play casino-style games was Monte Carlo. And that is where people began to flock to gamble, and they really 
kind of opened it up to a lot of people, not just the upper crust. You know, ordinary people started going there, but that really began to happen in the United States, too. I see. So when, you know, I, I read Dostoevsky's The Gambler, not in preparation for this show. I mean, I read it a long time ago. Yeah. And uh, there are people gambling there. Was that an underground club or were there clubs well established uh, at that time? Because it was written in the 19th century. And from your yeah. timeline, I would think that it was illegal. Was it in Monaco? Is that where it was? Was it that, in Monte Carlo? That was actually in the German, one of the German resorts in the 1860s. And they were banned around 1873. I so see. it was kind of the twilight of that of that German uh, casino period. Huh. Well, it's interesting. If you look at the history of gambling in this country, which I've done, you see a, a, a true pendulum uh, swinging of full legalization, and then people get nervous, and there's usually a scandal, and it goes back to making it completely illegal, and then gradually it moves the other way. What was it like in Europe? What caused the mass uh, illegalization, if there's such a word, of gambling one country to the other? What caused that? Mostly people panicking and saying, well, we are, you know, well, this really happened as Europe became more industrialized, more of a capitalist area as opposed to being the pre-capitalist where you just kind of came into money and you would squander it as you saw fit. They really started to look, this was when the middle class began to really rise. They valued hard work. They valued saving and investment as opposed to spending money so much. So it really was part of that shift, part of that intellectual shift that happened. And that's when you see the most of the major countries in Europe ban gambling, and that's when the United States, states in the United States start to pass laws against gambling in that period. So there's this initial reaction against gambling. About 100 years later, the pendulum does start to swing in the other way, and they say, well, huh, you know, we pass these laws against gambling, but people are still gambling more than ever. Why don't we, you know, bring it out of the back rooms and, most importantly, let the government make a little money off of it so we don't have to raise taxes? And when was that? When it started, what was the first uh, sign of the new wave of legalized gambling? Well, it really starts in the U.S. in the 1920s, and it starts with horse racing and paramutual betting, which was the first real form of gambling that the that governments got into in the 20th century that was seen as legitimate. You know, just to remind your listeners, Nevada had had legal casinos as far back as 1869, but in 1909 they outlawed them. And that's really the the low point for legal, legal, yeah, legal gambling in the U.S. is around 1910. Pretty much the only places you could bet legally in anything were Kentucky and Maryland on horse racing. You know, from there in the 20s, you see other states start to add horse racing. Bingo starts to become popular in the 1930s, so states add charitable gaming. 1931, Nevada legalizes commercial gambling, and really that's where it all starts to take off. What about, uh, I'm just thinking of kind of random things that indicate gambling to me and have for a long time. The Irish sweepstakes, when did that get started? That's always been based on a horse race, right? Yeah, that, and that's been, you know, that had been thriving for a long time. That was one of the holdouts in Europe. Um, you know, when other countries made gambling illegal, the Irish sweepstakes remained legal, and there was some controversy about those tickets being sold abroad outside of Ireland. So that is, you know, and, and what happened later is the other, other countries said, well, huh, the Irish are doing it, and they're not sinking down in the sea, so maybe we should have our own lotteries. And they, they started to bring back lotteries in the 20th century, too. Stick around. We'll be back right after a break. 
Nice shot. Yeah, I'm feeling good today. I can tell. What's up? Oh, my back feels better than it has in a long time. New masseuse? Nope, it's Spine Doc. Oh, a chiropractor. No, it's this great product that relieves back pain and tension. How does it work? Oh, you just lay on it for about five to ten minutes a day, and it stretches and relaxes your entire back. Huh. Does it hurt? No, it's very comfortable with good support, and the stretch, it's nice and easy. Even Nancy uses it. Oh, she likes it. It must be good. And when it's done for my neck and shoulders, pure magic. <laughs> yeah, I'll say. If long hours hunched over the computer, sports or life in general has left your back or neck in pain, order Spine Doc and get relief. Just call 800-788-2744. The first 100 orders will get a free upgrade to our deluxe system and free shipping. That's a savings of over 25%. Call 800-788-2744 now to learn more. That's 800-788-2744. 800-788-2744. Spine Doc, a better back for life. Hi, listeners. This is Ashley Adams, professional poker player, author, and host of House of Cards. You can all, wherever you're listening to our show, we're now blanketing the United States. You can send in your questions or comments about the show to info at houseofcardsradio.com. And you can also get our tweets on Twitter at www.twitter.com slash hocradio. Info at houseofcardsradio.com and www.twitter.com slash HOC Radio. Some houses are born bad. You're listening to the House of Cards. I never dreamed that any mere physical experience could be so stimulating. Welcome back, listeners. This is Ashley Adams. You're listening to House of Cards. Listeners, for the, those of you who just tuned in, we're talking to a fascinating guest, David G. Schwartz, who's the director uh, of the Center for Gaming Research at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, just written and updated a book called Roll the Bones, which is the history of gambling. So the Irish sweepstakes survive from the early 19th century into the 20th century, um, and it was... Of course, you said there was a controversy about the ability to sell tickets in other countries. What was that controversy? Well, basically, other countries didn't like the fact that their people were buying tickets, and there was a mail-order trade in those tickets. So went back and forth, you know, and eventually what happened is though most of those countries started their own lotteries to try to cut them out of that. I see. When, when did that happen, when other countries started their own uh, lotteries? That happened in the 20th century. I see. Because I, I remember traveling through Mexico in the late 70s, mm-hmm. and I didn't know Spanish well enough to really understand what was happening, but I kept seeing these people hawking uh, pieces of paper uh, on just about every street corner, and I later found out that was the government-sponsored lottery, the number uh, of the day, and I'm wondering if that uh, that was a relatively recent phenomenon or if Mexico and other non-American countries uh, in the Western Hemisphere had gaming even before that. No, that's mostly a post-war, you know, post-World War II. Uh, the U.S. was kind of late to the game. They didn't, lotteries in the U.S. didn't really start to reappear until 1964. New Hampshire became the first state to legalize the lottery. And a lot of states followed suit in the 70s. So that's, that's that, although Britain got their first lottery less than 10 years ago. So some states are later than, later than others. Now, Britain has many, many, many gaming parlors, gambling parlors where you can bet on Lots of different things. When did they start? That was a lot more than 10 years ago. 
Yeah, those have been around for a while. And Britain is really interesting because on one hand, if you go to a casino there, they're tiny. You know, they, they can have a maximum of 20 slot machines. They've got about two dozen table games there. They're really small. So you would think that, well, Britain is so restrictive, they don't like gambling. But then you walk down the street, and you've got these betting shops everywhere. And those have been around for a while, since 1968, when they amended their betting laws to, to allow that. And it's funny because the one form of gambling that in the United States most states look at as being almost like toxic waste, they don't want to touch it, they've had in Britain for 40 years, and it's thriving. And everybody's doing well, and people seem to tolerate it well. So it's, it's very interesting that you know, the leagues in the U.S. say, well, you can't have legalized sports wagering. It'll cause the end of civilization. Well, they've been doing it in Britain for, for decades, and they seem to be doing okay. I agree. Do they do it in any other countries? Yeah, yeah. Most countries have a lot of betting, especially on soccer, or as they call it over their football. It's really big. And, you know, in Britain, you don't even need to go to these betting shops to place your bets. You can bet on your mobile device. You can bet on your phone. And it's no big deal. <laughs> kind of everybody does it who wants to do it, and those who don't want to do it don't do it. It sounds, this is maybe a, a bad analogy, but it sounds like gambling in England is, compared to the United States, is like drinking in France compared to the United States. People do it. They do it all the time. It's no big deal. They don't have as many problem drinkers in France as we have here because here it's a much bigger deal and there are older age limits and it's considered a rite of passage the way it really isn't there. Would you say that's analogous from what you've seen? Yeah, yeah, it is, you know, because the, the gambling age is 18. And, again, they seem to be able to handle it. Do they have slot machines in England? In they these do. small parlors? They have, yeah, they have these um, fixed, what they call fixed, odd, fixed, fixed odds betting terminals, which are really electronic roulette games like you see in some casinos here. So they have, they have those, up to four of those in the betting shops. Um, and like I said, the casinos are restricted to 20 machines. So British casinos look much different from U.S. casinos. You know, in the U.S., you walk into a casino whether it's Foxwoods or MGM Grand in Las Vegas or anywhere, and really the slot machines dominate everything. Um, there, the slot machines are kind of tucked off to the side, and it's the table games that are the center of everything, but they're really tiny compared to what people in the U.S. are used to. Well, you know, I'm, I'm really glad you're here because I've had a lot of questions about gaming devices, and I'm wondering, in Las Vegas, is there some huge collection of gaming devices that – a visitor could could see? Is there a museum dedicated to them? No, there is a pinball museum, but I'm not aware of any slot machine museum, although, you know, that with the success of so many museums in Las Vegas now, we've got the Mob Museum, um, we've got the Neon Museum. You know, it's probably just a matter of time before somebody opens a slot machine museum. I think it would be a great place for it. How about a museum for gaming or gambling in general? with other gambling devices other than just slot machines. Do you know? I, I, and here's what I'm thinking. About seven years ago, six or seven years ago, Steve Forte, who is a, you must know because he's an industry oh, yeah. expert, and he was embroiled in a scandalous thing in Atlantic City that was he, his name was cleared, I think. And he had a huge private collection that I was lucky enough to get to see, and he wanted to find a place where he could display it publicly for all to see. And I'm wondering if there is such a place and if anything ever happened to his enormous collection. No, I'm not aware of any place any place like that in Las Vegas. And it, I think it would be a great thing for the city if, if they could open a place like that. How about at the University of uh, 
Nevada in Las Vegas. They must have space to have something like that. Uh, do you know Steve? Uh, not personally, no. I see. But you know who he is. I do, yes. Well, if there's any way you can make that connection, I think it would be a great attraction. I'm sure you would get a lot of the uh, the owners of the casinos willing to pitch in to help, if only to get some good PR in Nevada. Um, I have a bunch of other questions. Do you have a few more minutes? I sure do. Great. Um, roulette is something that uh, I'm fascinated by because you can find in the same casino what they call a European wheel with only a single zero and an American wheel with a double zero, and it seems like players don't care at all about the odds, and they'll flock to the American wheel as quickly, much more quickly than they will to the European wheel, even though uh, the odds are better on the European wheel. How did roulette get its start, and how is it that we have two different wheels of roulette, one called the American wheel and one called the European wheel? Roulette started really around the time of the French Revolution. That's when it kind of solidified. There were earlier games that used the wheel and used the board, but it wasn't quite like the modern roulette we know. Modern roulette dates from about then, so around the 1790s, became very popular in those spa resorts in Europe in the 19th century. And originally, most of the games were the double zero roulette, like American roulette is today. What happened was, and I talk about this in the book, one gambling entrepreneur named Francois Blanc decides to sort of do the first, you know, value-seeking promotion for gambling. You know, and instead of saying, we're going to give you $50 of free play for your first $25 of play, he says, we're going to take that second zero, the double zero, out of roulette and basically half the odds and cut the odds on roulette in half and give you a better deal. Wow. So it's very interesting that his response, because his resort at Hamburg wasn't nicer than other resorts, he said, we're going to give him better gambling conditions. So yeah, kind better of like, value for the buck, yeah. for the franc. Yeah, so he's kind of like the predecessor to guys like Jackie Gone and Benny Binion in downtown Las Vegas, who, who did much the same, really focusing on the gambling. That became so popular, so many people went there, that all the competitors had to do the same thing. I see. So it's kind of like six to five blackjack in reverse, you know, whereas on the strip now, a lot of the casinos are putting in the six to five blackjack and people are playing it anyway. You know, back then he brought out the single zero roulette and it became standard because people, the players demanded it. But in the U.S. So, they didn't have to make that adaptation because there wasn't the same eagerness for competition. Yeah, and the U.S. roulette came later and roulette's never been a huge game in the U.S. It's in... Nevada casinos, it's been maybe like 8%, 9% of the total gaming revenue. It's just never been big, partially, I think, because of the double double zero. And it's funny because some players prefer the double zero for some reason. Right. Well, I yeah. know why, at least why. I was at Foxwoods, and being a mischievous sort, I went to some roulette players at the standard table in the regular part of the casino, and I, I asked them, I said, do you know that there's a table in the high-stakes area, but – Instead of you betting two $15 bets on red, you have to bet a minimum of 25 uh, Do you know that there's a table in there with uh, only a single zero? The first seven people I said I talked to, they didn't know what I was talking about. They said, well, I don't care or whatever. One guy said, oh, yeah, yeah, I know that, but uh, I like the layout here better, huh. meaning how the numbers are laid out. It are, it's different because you're – you're laying out one with only a single zero, and the numbers, I guess, are displayed somewhat differently than at the other uh, table. And uh, somebody else said, well, I'm luckier here. 
So, go figure. Uh, yeah, it's strange. Yeah. It's re- really strange. And I think that if they did have single-zero roulette in the U.S., it would be a much more popular game. You know, in Britain, roulette in the casinos is a huge game, and people flock to it because it's got about a two-point-something house edge, you know, as opposed to the 5.73% in U.S. casinos. So it's actually it's a pretty good game. You don't need skill. And I think it would be a lot more popular if they, if they really push the single-zero. Please stay tuned. We'll be back in about a minute. Hey, Jersey, we want to hear from you. Send us an email at info at houseofcardsradio.com or leave a message at our hotline at 609-474-4627. Great Moments in History In July 1937, Amelia Earhart was informed by her navigator, Fred Noonan, that they were off course over the Pacific Ocean. You're wrong. You just in here telling me that I'm not in Tennessee. Can I hold the f***? No. Can I hold the f***? No. That is so not cool. In June 2008, House of Cards began podcasting. Go to HouseOfCardsRadio.com and click on the podcast button for all recent show downloads. Heading out to Vegas for the World Series of Poker or just hitting the strip for a vacation? Check out PlayerRooms.com before you go. With PlayerRooms.com, you can book a room at the beautiful LVH, formerly the Las Vegas Hilton, between May 15th and July 30th for only $36 a night. Same rate every night, even Friday and Saturdays. That's $36 a night between May 15th and July 30th. Playerrooms.com. A great room at a great price. Book it today. Hey, this is Dave Weishadl from House of Cards with your House of Cards gaming report for the week of April 29th, 2013. More than 30 people were charged by federal authorities in a sting which involved illegal gambling, money laundering, and extortion. The operation allegedly involved two criminal organizations, one based in Los Angeles and New York, and the other based in Kiev, New York City, and Moscow. At the core of the illegal activities was a series of high-stake poker games and illegal activities catering to millionaires, poker pros, and Hollywood stars. The New York Times also reports that the indictment named Molly Bloom, who made headlines in 2011, for her role in arranging poker games for stars like Tobey Maguire and Matt Damon. Police in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania had a bus that also made the news last week. Police charge Yadira Torres and Eduardo Martinez with trying to use counterfeit money at the Sands Casino Resort. Allegedly, Martinez met with an unidentified man and bought $300 worth of fake money for $150. The plot was discovered when Martinez tried to buy chips from a dealer at the casino. And finally, court officials in Las Vegas have dropped the felony case against Denver Broncos safety Quentin Carter. Carter was arrested at the Texas Station Casino after he allegedly placed a $5 bet at the craps table after the dice had already been thrown. Carter's attorney, Andrew Levitt, arranged to have the third-year NFL player forfeit $1,000 in bail money as part of the agreement to drop the charges. And that concludes our police blotter version of the gaming report. But if you have any news or tips regarding casinos, gaming, or legislation, send us an email at newsroom at houseofcardsradio.com and follow us on Twitter at HOC Radio. Great Moments in History In 481 B.C., the defeat of the Spartans at the Battle of Thermopylae. As long as Xerxes doesn't find the secret path to the hot gates, where is it, boy? Xerxes has found the secret goat path to the hot gates. Ah, shit! 
In June 2008, House of Cards began podcasting. Go to HouseOfCardsRadio.com and click on the podcast button for all recent show downloads. You're listening to the House of Cards. Good question. You know how easy Texas Hold'em looks on TV when you can see the other guy's whole cards? Yeah. Very different in real life. Welcome back, listeners. This is Ashley Adams. You're listening to House of Cards. Uh, listeners, we're talking to David Schwartz, who's the author of Roll the Bones, A History of Gaming. I, I had uh, – there's been another innovation in roulette, just because we happen to be talking about it, right? I mean, you can there's – a, there's a wheel where if it lands on the zero, it's essentially a push, which halves, again, the house advantage. Isn't there something like that? Do you know what I'm talking about? Um, yes, yeah, I've seen entrapment that or something where if it lands on the zero, you you spin it again without the house taking the money. Yeah, you know they do have a lot of variations like that around. So uh, yeah, you know that that certainly sounds like one of the things that that uh, they have out there. There's definitely a lot of different ways to try to make the game more attractive. Now, how about craps? How did that get started, and why did that become so popular? Do you think in the United States? Craps is interesting. Craps develops around New Orleans in the United States in the early 1800s and spreads throughout the whole country. You know, it was a very popular game on the riverboats. People who worked on the riverboats ends up spreading throughout the country, becoming a very big game in the inner cities. You know, and if you've seen Guys and Dolls, you know, you'll you have an idea of how big it was and the kind of it was a very niche game. It was kind of in the gambling subculture. So people who weren't gamblers and horse players and bookies didn't maybe know the game so well, you know, in the early part of the 20th century. In World War II, a lot of servicemen learned how to play the game and played the game. So they ended up playing this game during the war, bringing it back home with them. After the war, when Las Vegas really took off, craps became the most popular casino game. And really dominated. And for a while there in the 40s and 50s, if you wanted to see the action in the casino, you'd go down to the craps pit, and that's where all the big money was being bet. The other games were really sort of incidental in that period. Do you know when the house odds, the payouts, became standardized? Or has it always been exactly the same? Or have there been shifts and have there been changes in the layout and the way the different bets were taken and paid out? Well, the game's evolved, but mostly by the time it became popular in Vegas in the 40s and 50s, it achieved its its, its modern form, more or less. I see. Interesting. Um, are there any games that, in the last hundred years, that for a while were really popular and then faded out into obscurity? I mean, we know Pharaoh is not spread anymore. I think the last Pharaoh table was probably at uh, some downtown Las Vegas casino. I, f- I forget which one, and probably in the 70s was the last surviving table. Uh, anything that's come and gone that we thought was going to become popular but then faded out of uh, popularity? Yeah, you had games like Red Dog, which were Red Dog. kind of coming up in the 90s. Do you remember that? Yeah, explain that game to our listeners. That, I'm, not, I'm not even that familiar with how it's played anymore because I haven't seen it in, I think, 20 years. But that was, a big, you know, that was a big game back in the early 90s. They were kind of bringing that in. I remember when that came to Atlantic City, it was a huge deal. And that's really faded. You know, you see a lot of games do sort of cycle through. Caribbean Stud Poker is kind of on the 
decline now in a lot of Nevada casinos. They've gone to three-card poker and other games. And a lot of those carnival games, the, the poker-type games, tend to have a pretty quick turnover compared to the games like Bach and Roulette and Blackjack, which are around. You know, another interesting thing about the game's life cycle is that Blackjack was really unpopular until 1962 when right. a book called Beat the Dealer right. by Ed Thorpe came out. Right. That's because and, players reading it thought they could gain an edge. Yeah. And, you know, it's actually true. You can, you know, as I'm sure your listeners know, really, black, you know, blackjack is the one casino game where it's possible to get an edge in the house. doesn't mean you're always going to win, but it's possible to get that edge under favorable conditions for the players. So that was really what led to the popularity of the game, which is why it's funny now that they're trying 6-5 blackjack and stuff like that. You know, maybe that's one of the reasons why the game isn't as popular and why Baccarat, in Nevada at least, has really come on. Well, tell us about Baccarat, how it got started, and its ebb and flow in the United States. Baccarat is a fascinating game. You know, it develops in Italy back in the 1500s or so, kind of kicks around for a while and doesn't, isn't really that popular. Roulette is way more popular. Then, in the early 1900s, France decides that Monte Carlo is so successful that they will legalize casinos to try to get some of that money. But the people who ran the casino in Monte Carlo had been very generous to the French government and to certain French politicians. So they said, we'll legalize casinos, but we won't let them have roulette, which was the big game. That's when Baccarat became big in these French casinos that started around in the early 1900s. And this was the form, it was Chemin de Fer mostly, where the deal passes between the players, where they basically pass the bank amongst each other. And that's the form of, of roulette that you see them playing in the original Casino Royale, you know, where Bond is playing heads up against uh, Le Chiffre. They're playing that Chemin de Fer. And this was, this became established as really the aristocratic game, high limits, um, kind of exclusive. Baccarat first comes over to the U.S. in the 1950s. They played at the Dunes. They played at the Sands. It doesn't really catch on until the 70s when they start bringing junkets of people up from Latin America and from Asia. And that's when it really starts to catch on in Las Vegas. You know, fast forward to about 10 years ago when the U.S. companies start going into Macau in China, they found out that, hey, Baccarat is a huge game, and Baccarat in China is responsible, in Macau, is responsible for about 95% of all their gaming revenues. I mean, wow. it's huge. Wow. That's amazing. Did You know, people know stereotypically that Asians as a group are big gamblers. Um, have there been historically large casinos in Asia prior to the... Uh, explosion of casino money in Macau? I mean, did they have big casinos all over Asia in the 19th and 20th century? No, they didn't. A lot like in the U.S., they had this really ambiguous relationship where it was technically illegal, but it was thriving underground. So, you know, Macau had had legal casinos going back to the 1860s, but they weren't really Western-style casinos. They, back back. Then in the 1860s, they had only traditional Asian games. They didn't have Baccarat. It wasn't until much later, you know, in the 1960s that they started to bring in games like Baccarat and that they kind of started to take off. But then they really took off after the reversion to China, and then China started to liberalize their visa restrictions so lots of people could go there. And then within the past 10 years is when Macau has really taken off.
How big is it? I mean, I've been to Las Vegas. I've been to Atlantic City. Can you put it in terms of, uh, can you put it in context of casinos that I know here? Yeah. So imagine if, imagine going to the Borgata on New Year's Eve around 1030 at night, New Year's Eve. That's huge. You know, pretty and, packed. Yes. Right. So imagine that, but it's about three o'clock in the afternoon on a Wednesday. <laughs> that's Macau. <laughs> that's pretty much what the casinos in Macau are like. They love to play baccarat there. They love to gamble. They're they're packed. To give you kind of the more clinical, you know, numbers behind it, in 2012, Nevada casinos made about 10.5 billion dollars, maybe 10.6. Macau casinos made more than 38 billion dollars. Oh my god, that's And there's only 35 of them. That's gross. That's profit. Yeah. That's no, that's not profit. That's how much revenue they brought in, and then from that they have to pay taxes and pay everything. That's their that's their gross revenue. That's not their profit. That's their revenue. That's how much money they kept after paying all the winners. Wow. So yeah, it's more, it's almost four times the entire state of Nevada. To put that in the even more perspective, if you combined every casino in the United States, both uh, Indian casinos and commercial casinos and casinos, they'd make about sixty billion dollars. So 34, 35 casinos in Macau made about two-thirds of what every <laughs> casino in the U.S. did, if you combined them all. It's incredible. Are they still growing, or have they pretty much topped out, at least for now? No, they're growing. They're growing They're growing more slowly, but they're still growing, definitely. So, you know, they'll be over $40 billion this year, you know, maybe up to $45 billion. They're, they're definitely still growing. A lot of it depends on the Chinese economy and, and stuff going on with the Chinese government. So there's always that little X factor. If you know, Beijing decides to clamp down on it and deny visa restrictions, it could go into the tank. But if that doesn't happen, it looks like it's still going to be growing pretty steadily. And Steve Wynn has a new casino that he's going to be opening up there. Wynn Kotai, um, MGM has a casino in the pipeline. So they're going to be adding some casinos, too. Well, we have about two minutes left, and and I can tell you, David, you and I could talk for a long time. Uh, I could go on another hour listening to you. But tell us, use your gambler's crystal ball and predict what you see happening in the United States. And by the way, we're talking to David Schwartz, who's the director of the Center for Gaming Research at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and the author of Roll the Bones. What do you see happening in the United States with regard to gaming? Do you see it continuing to grow? Do you see the pendulum starting to head back? Do you see Internet gaming coming back online? What do you see? It's going to continue to grow, and we will get Internet gaming eventually because states need money. Every state needs money. No state wants to raise taxes. You know, I don't think voters are going to let them raise taxes. They just need the money, and we're going to have gambling because, you know, at the end of the day, people, Americans like to gamble. You know, they'll do it whether it's legal or illegal. So states are going to figure, why not make it legal and make some money off of it? I think that's that's where it's going to go, and I think that's why we're eventually going to get the Internet gaming. You know, other countries have been doing Internet gaming for 10 years now, 15 years now. So I think the U.S. is going to end up doing that, too. Well, you are clearly an expert. Give our listeners your website and uh, how they can get a hold of your book and how they can get a hold of you, especially if people in the industry want to hire you as a prognosticator or as an analyst how do they get a hold of you, David? Yeah, sure. I've got a website. It's dgschwartz.com, dgschwartz.com. I'm on Twitter, at UNLV Gaming, so people can get in touch with me that way, too. You know, all my contact info is on my website. If they're interested in buying a copy of the new edition of Roll the Bones, it's available 
um, in paperback from Lulu.com. It's going to be on Amazon pretty soon too, and it's available as an ebook for Kindle, Nook, Kobo, and iBooks. So it's very very widely available. Terrific. Well, listeners, that's David Schwartz. His site is D G Schwartz S C H W A R T Z dot com. David, you're a pleasure to talk to. I hope we can have you back before too long. And uh, good luck with book sales on Roll the Bones. I hope so, too. Thanks so much for having me on. All right, listeners, stay tuned. We'll be back after a quick break. Hi, listeners. This is Ashley Adams. I just wanted to uh, mention something, that if any of you have any poker questions that you would like to ask, we are always interested in your questions and comments about the show, about the guests, strategy questions. They could be practical questions about where and how to find the game. Send your questions to info at houseofcardsradio.com. Com. And you can also get our tweets on Twitter at www.twitter.com slash HOC radio. We're very interested in them. And of course, if they're particularly interesting, we'll put them on the air and answer them here in our segment of mailbag. Info at houseofcardsradio.com and www.twitter.com slash HOC radio. Info at houseofcardsradio.com and www.twitter.com. Dot com slash HOC radio. Fellas, are you looking to spice things up in the bedroom? Been fantasizing about surprising your lover with an adventurous new toy or adult movie? Well, here's an offer you won't be able to resist. Go to adamandeve.com and for a limited time only, you'll get 50% off just about any item. But that's not all. Oh, no. When you select your one item at 50% off, you'll also receive three free adult DVDs for a little inspiration, plus a free extra gift so sensual, we can't mention it on the radio. And to top it all off, we'll even throw in free shipping on your entire order. And no, we're not teasing. So check out adamandeve.com today for this special offer. Get 50% off one item when you type BABE16 for the offer code upon checkout. When you do, you'll get three free DVDs, a free extra gift, and free shipping. Just use offer code BABE16 at adamandeve.com. Ooh, nice shot. Yeah, I'm feeling good today. I can tell. What's up? Oh, my back feels better than it has in a long time. New masseuse? Nope, it's Spine Doc. Oh, a chiropractor. No, it's this great product that relieves back pain and tension. How does it work? Oh, you just lay on it for about five to ten minutes a day, and it stretches and relaxes your entire back. Huh, does it hurt? No, it's very comfortable with good support, and the stretch, it's nice and easy. Even Nancy uses it. Oh, if she likes it, it must be good. And when it's done for my neck and shoulders, pure magic. <laughs> yeah, I'll say. If long hours hunched over the computer, sports or life in general has left your back or neck in pain, order Spine Doc and get relief. Just call 800-788-2744. The first 100 orders will get a free upgrade to our deluxe system and free shipping. That's a savings of over 25%. Call 800-788-2744 now to learn more. That's 800-788-2744. 800-788-2744. Spine Doc, a better back for life. 
You're listening to House of Cards on the House of Cards Radio Network. Check us out at HouseOfCardsRadio.com. This is House of Cards Radio with Ashley Adams. In the field of local live entertainment. Oh, my God! Welcome back, listeners. This is Ashley Adams. You're listening to House of Cards, and I'm joined uh, for this segment, as I always am, by my expert producer, Dave Weishattel. Dave, what do we got this week? Well, we got a question from Jason, and he knows you uh, do a lot of poker tournaments, and he wants to get involved, and he's not sure which ones to get involved in. What do you look for in a poker tournament, which is worth your time and money? Well, I don't. where does uh, Jason live? He's from New Jersey. From New Jersey. Well... There are a number of questions. Uh, the first question is, what's his bankroll? What does he feel comfortable spending on a tournament? If he has $100 to his name and wants to go enter poker tournaments, then um, his options are more limited. I'd suggest start as small as he can find. Um, the second question is, what is the house taking out of the buy-in? A lot of tournaments... Uh, especially ones that are not in casinos, uh, they advertise themselves as uh, you know twenty thousand chips or a hundred thousand chips or five thousand chips. Actually, I've never seen a hundred thousand chip tournament, but that's really irrelevant. What's important is how much of your buy-in goes to the prize pool. So, if it's a twenty-dollar tournament, but only ten goes into the prize pool and the other ten goes to the house, that's not a good deal. Um, Similarly, if it's a $20 tournament and all 20, it's a bunch of guys, they all put in 20 bucks, and there are 10 of you and the winner gets $200, that's a good deal. The other thing to look at is how quickly structured the tournament is. Do the, do the uh, blinds go up really fast, meaning that this tournament is quickly becoming a crapshoot where there's really not much skill because you're almost shoving all your stack in anytime you want to play? Well, or, well what's really fast? Well, here's an example. It depends on the starting size and the starting blinds and how quickly they go up. So here's a standard tournament these days. You get 5,000 in chips, blinds start at 2550, and they go up every 20 minutes. Okay? That gives you some time to play. It gives you the ability. You're only... Uh, you're you're starting out with a hundred times the big blind twenty five fifty. You have five thousand in chips. That's a hundred times the big blind. The tournament depends on how many people they are, but it could take three, four, five hours. On the other hand, now they have these super deep stack or mega deep stack tournaments where you start with twenty thousand chips, twenty five dollars and fifty dollar blinds, and they go up every half hour. That's a very gradual structure. Uh, in the old days, it was incredibly quick. You'd have 15-minute um, blinds, twenty-five fifty, and they'd start you off with $1,000. There's a lot of charity tournaments like that. You want to get them over quickly. If you're the charity operator, you don't want to be sitting around for lots of hours. So that's what I would look at. And then, finally, I just look at the convenience. Um, why drive down to a casino that's going to take a rake if, for a $20 tournament, you could just get 10 guys or women uh, to come over? and play for 20 bucks, And that might be the best thing to do. In fact, I would recommend, in conclusion, <laughs> in conclusion, my recommendation is for somebody just starting out to organize a home game. 
and do a tournament that way. It's cheaper, it's more convenient, and you can structure it however the hell you want. You could start out with 100,000 chips, and they go up every hour, and you could do a 50-hour tournament, uh, and you could have a great time for two days overnight without sleeping or drinking. A beginning poker player sounds like you're going to lose your money really quickly if you start doing tournaments, if you just jump into it, if you're just starting out playing the game. No, not no, necessarily so? at all. No, in fact, because you're... So it's just me that... The, because the, you're... Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so a while ago. If you're new, you may be new and very timid and very tentative and not be putting your chips at risk. You may be playing poorly because you may be uh, overwhelmed with timidity instead of temerity, but which I, I just I imagine are SAT words for listeners here. Um, but that doesn't mean that you're going to lose all your chips at once. I mean, you're just probably too tentative, and you could go on a long time. It really is a factor of how steeply structured the tournament is. Okay, I think what else have, you got? I think we have a time for another question. Yes. Mark from Pennsylvania. He's going out to Las Vegas pretty soon for the first time. And he was told by a bunch of his friends that all the poker players out there, a lot of them know each other. Watch out for guys who know each other when you sit down at the table. Is that good advice? Watch out for poker players well, who know each other at the table. And do you adjust strategy when you do that? It's not bad advice. It's just silly advice. Okay. <laughs> because, first of all... So, so his friends are just screwing around his with friends, him, right? <laughs> he's not somebody who knows everybody who's out there. In fact, very few tourists know a lot of guys that are out there. And most of the people in the games, at least the lower stakes games, are tourists. So if he plays at Treasure TI, at Treasure Island, if he plays at the Excalibur, if he plays at uh, the low stakes games at the MGM, uh, Caesars, those places, God knows O'Shea's, uh, they're tourists. So you don't have to watch out for him. If you're going to play big money games, you know, 10, 25 blind, uh, no limit games, you always got to be worried about collusion just to be sure. But the way to worry about collusion, I don't know what you get by watching people. You should always be concerned about people that are raising very aggressively. Um, but I think the collusion is, is over. Um, is exaggerated, the amount of collusion that goes on, especially in the low limit games. I would be much more concerned with playing carefully and thoughtfully, uh, reading a couple of good poker books to give you an idea of the right starting hands, uh, not going crazy, not getting drunk, not just throwing <laughs> your money away. That's what I would advise him to do. So, And also, he shouldn't sit down at the table and say, wow, this is Vegas, huh? Well, <laughs> that's actually, you know, if he said that, uh, that's not necessarily a bad idea to throw everybody else off to think you're yeah, a complete you rookie. Let them think you don't know what you're doing. So what do we got? I can't even read that. I know. Our, Doug, our, the our pro- reflection. Our producer it? is... Three uh, minutes. Oh, three oh, minutes. We he's giving to, you the finger. Uh, giving me three fingers. <laughs> three so fingers. One finger isn't enough. One finger is enough. So what else? Okay, one more quick question quick I have. Quick question, yes. Can you ask a player at the table how many chips they have? And if he doesn't answer, can you ask the dealer to uh, ask the player how many chips he has? Yes and yes. Okay, that's not bad etiquette. I mean, you just well can't. now if it's bad. No, you, in fact, I just came back from a trip. I was at a poker room and uh, I was playing, and uh, a number of times it came up where I wanted to know how many chips somebody had. They were obscuring their stack with their hands, not trying to conceal it, but they just. And I said, "Excuse within me. the rules, yeah, blocking you're, you're, your stack." No, no. Okay, your chips are supposed to be visible, especially your high denomination chips. But the, the player had his hands in front of them. So I, you're allowed to have your hands in front. You just, if somebody asks you to move them, you move. I said, so how many chips do you have? What do you have? What's your stack? And uh, he looked and he uh, he said something. I said, I said to the dealer, I can't hear what he's saying. <laughs> and uh, the dealer said, 
didn't say anything, but he heard me say, I can't hear what he's saying. And he said loudly, he counted it out and it was whatever it was. But if he didn't answer, then the dealer is says, you know, can estimate the dealer is not going to count down his stack in a tournament. It might be different, but in a cash game, you just have to estimate it. Can you put your high denomination chips behind your lower? No, I mean, you you have to have them out a certain way on top or in front. Well, okay. Well, that's all, all right. I have today. Okay. Uh, that's it for House of Cards. Thanks for listening, listeners. We'll be back next week. Until then, good night and good luck. Fellas, are you looking to spice things up in the bedroom? Been fantasizing about surprising your lover with an adventurous new toy or adult movie? Well, here's an offer you won't be able to resist. Go to adamandeve.com, and for a limited time only, you'll get 50% off just about any item. But that's not all. Oh, no. When you select your one item at 50% off, you'll also receive three free adult DVDs for a little inspiration. Plus, a free extra gift so sensual, we can't mention it on the radio. And to top it all off, we'll even throw in free shipping on your entire order. And no, we're not teasing. So check out adamandeve.com today for this special offer. Get 50% off one item when you type BABE16 for the offer code upon checkout. When you do, you'll get three free DVDs, a free extra gift, and free shipping. Just use offer code BABE16 at adamandeve.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>